0: Welcome to Trail Mix 2016. I'm Scripps News reporter Miranda Green, and I'm calling in from New York this week. Joining me on the other side is Justin Green, politics editor at the Independent Journal Review, and Aswin Soob Sang, the social media editor at the Daily Beast. Hey guys, how are you?
1: How you doing? Good morning. Happy 420.
0: <laughs> Happy 420. Uh, the, the most important day, obviously, after a big primary election.
1: So, Miranda, how are things in New York right now? Where are you?
0: Well, currently, I am sitting in my hotel room uh, after a long week of being up here reporting on the primary election. Um, It's been an interesting one, especially because New York is not exactly a state that typically holds a lot of water when it comes to primary races. Uh,
1: So, Miranda, you've been in New York for a week at this point. Uh, Where has that taken you in the state?
0: Well, so and I've actually been all over New York City. I came up here last Wednesday and I started being in the city itself, but made a little bit of a, a trek to the upstate region, which is where a lot of the Republican candidates have been spending their time. I was in Syracuse, I was in Utica, and I was in Rochester following around both Ted Cruz and John Kasich. Uh, Both of those candidates spent a lot of time in those regions where there happens to be more Republican voters. New York State isn't exactly a state that has a lot of Republican voters. Uh, So a lot of the Republican candidates had to kind of be really strategic with where they were spending their time, definitely focusing on areas like the Hudson River Valley, Long Island, Staten Island, and the upstate areas. Uh, I was down here in Manhattan, which is where I am now, covering mostly the Democrats, both Hillary. Clinton and Bernie Sanders spent a lot of time in the boroughs around Manhattan and New York City. Uh, Bernie Sanders held three different concerts that brought in about 20,000 people each around uh, New York City. Hillary Clinton focused more on her individual small uh, rally-type gatherings, but both of them kind of blanketed this area, trying to attract the Democratic voters that live in this area.
2: What were some of the interesting notes you saw from particularly like the celebrity studded surrogacy game in New York um, that at times got, at least it seemed from afar, got pretty contentious?
0: Why would you say it got contentious?
2: Uh, the guy from Vampire Weekend, which I, to be honest, don't know what it is.
0: <laughs> Vampire Weekend is actually a great band.
2: <laughs> sure, whatever. I mean, like it's music. But uh, d- he, he <laughs> threw up a tweet in which he described the New York primary system as bullshit because it didn't allow people to hop back and forth quickly between the primaries. Um, For instance, if you were a registered independent, if you didn't change your vote before October, you were basically locked out of the Democratic primary. It was interesting to see celebs hop in with some truly hot takes on this.
0: Yeah, this was a a topic of conversation that came up a lot while we were here in New York City. It's, It's obviously more of a state issue, but the fact that Essentially, in New York, it's a closed primary, so you cannot vote for either candidate um, in, in either the Republican or the Democratic Party unless you are part of that party. So independents are pretty much shit out of luck. And in order to switch into that party, you had to have done it back in October, which kind of is a little bit extreme when you consider that the primary is happening right now in April.
2: The only like true surprise of last night was it was not Donald Trump winning, not Donald Trump winning significantly. He was expected to do very well in New York. The The one that you're seeing a little bit of media gloating over today is that Trump lost Manhattan, where he resides. I mean, he he has made a lifetime saga out of moving out of Queens and Brooklyn and into Manhattan and being this giant developer and this man who represents in many ways New York. But he, he lost the island on which he lives and on which he's built his personal brand to the governor of Ohio. So that was really outside of the fact that Ted Cruz got the whopping zero Uh, yesterday, and that John Kasich did meh, it was a little interesting to see the only congressional district that Donald Trump actually lost be the one in which he votes.
0: Yeah, I have to say that looking at the campaign schedule this past week, it has been bizarre to me as well, because he actually set up zero campaign stops within the city. Uh, He spent a lot of time in the upstate New York area. He was in Buffalo. He was in Watertown. He even went out to Long Island, but he did not set up a single uh, press event or even public event in Manhattan. Uh, A lot of people were speculating that was because he thought that he would win. But I think the truth is, is that Manhattan is just an overwhelmingly Democratic area, and that's... The chances of finding a Republican stronghold, especially Republicans that were going to vote more conservative, uh, the typical Trump voter, was really slim and probably just not really worth Donald Trump's time. So the fact that... uh Kasich was able to to take out, you know, to take up those Republican voters in Manhattan is actually really not shocking when you think about it. Yeah, it's a great headline. Donald Trump loses Manhattan, the place where even his children were unable to vote for him because of the primary rules. But if you look at the demographics of the island, it's it really was not worth his time to try to get any voters here because it just probably was not going to end up working in his favor anyways.
1: Uh, But something that you did recently that you wrote about, uh, that I want you to talk about right now is that you actually did a tour of Donald Trump's boyhood days or childhood home uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that and walking in like uh, the Donald's shoes or at least you know his kid-sized one?
0: So Donald Trump lived in Jamaica Estates, Queens, uh, until he went off to military school, which was around high school time. Uh, but to put this into perspective, his fi- his family had really deep roots here. Um, his grandma lived in the area. Um, his, gr- his parents actually lived with her at her house for quite some time when they first got married. Then they moved into a second home around the corner where they had their first two children um, and then started to build a home of their own, a, a much grander home, which is actually the home where Donald Trump grew up, which was, again, around the corner from that. So the neighborhood himself has kind of been in his family for quite some time, but we haven't heard him talk about it at all in his campaign. And you don't see him ever going back to the region and especially did not see him stumping there uh, this past week leading up to the primary.
1: So since we're talking about Queens, uh, which way did the Queens actually end up tending to lean. Were they more Kasich voters, Cruz voters, or Trump voters?
0: So Queens actually tends to vote overwhelmingly Democratic. In the 2012 election, 70% of voters voted for Barack Obama. And the majority of the people that I talked to on the street there uh, this past weekend mentioned how they were all Hillary Clinton supporters, that they just didn't think that any of the Republicans really supported them. And um, a lot of them actually mentioned that they thought that the Republican Party in general was, was scary, was the word that they used, um, Talking about Donald Trump, they said that they didn't think he would have their best interests and heart, that he kind of was just looking out for the big guy, not the little guy, and that he really cared more about people who are already wealthy making more money and not people who uh, were poor and helping them rise to the middle class. So I actually have a topic I want to bring up with both of you. Uh, we obviously saw numbers come out yesterday that weren't terribly shocking. We saw um, Clinton overperform a little bit. She 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 got a higher percentage uh, distance from Bernie Sanders than a lot of the polls were showing here in New York City. And we saw Trump come out with a very, very strong finish of 60 percent, definitely clinching over that majority that he needed to try to get all of those delegates here in New York. But why don't we talk about the losers of the race right now? So we've had some pundits and we've had some party members actually call for some of these second place candidates to second and third place candidates to kind of say goodbye and and, and get out of this race so that they can leave the remaining candidates to have a fighting chance to actually continue on in the primaries and see how they do. We're seeing this very strongly on the Democrat side. Uh, Hillary Clinton has almost exactly the number of delegates that she needs in order to cinch the nomination, especially when you look at the superdelegate numbers, which at this case doesn't look like they're going to switch over to Bernie Sanders because of how strongly she's been doing with bound delegates on her own. Uh, Many people are saying that it's it's really time for Bernie Sanders to kind of bow out gracefully. Uh, What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, so-called establishment liberals have been saying that for ages. And People have been analyzing this for a while and who have been looking at the delegate math have been saying for months that, I'm sorry, the math is just not there. Like they're not necessarily in the tank for Hillary, um, even if they may be accused as such, as journalists are repeatedly for often saying the math is not there, the math is not there for Bernie Sanders, but just simply isn't. It hasn't been there for a long time. He hasn't had the chance of being the Democratic nominee for months, and he certainly doesn't have it now when Hillary Clinton's the winner. So the question really is, Just between now and the Democrat convention this summer, when is Bernie Sanders going to tap out? And when is his campaign going to finally stop trying to convince him that he can take this all the way to being the nominee? It's just not going to happen. Hillary Clinton is the nominee. She is the nominee.
0: This is something I think I've brought up with you two before, but I I even increasingly now have the question on my mind, which is, why is he staying in this long, right? If you look at the Republican side, we understand they have this contested convention on the table. This is something that many of those people who aren't Donald Trump uh, are hoping for, um, but that's not something we're going to see with the Democrats. So what is Bernie potentially hoping to get out of staying all the way to the end if these superdelegates are not going to flip to his side?
2: I I think the first piece that he's probably wants is a stronger negotiating position. I don't think that Bernie Sanders necessarily aspires to be like a cabinet level person or that he aspires to like get something personally out of this. But I do think that a person in his position is going to want to extract certain particularly policy requests out of a eventual nominee. So I think that's part of his consideration. But I think the other part of it, like especially from the perspective of watching people on the more committed left, is that they view... Bernie, as someone who is creating a movement, and this has I mean, this has sort of been argued out fairly extensively between like more establishment left types and the hard left. But if the idea is simply that Bernie Sanders is creating and an organizing a group of people who are going to aggressively push to left, push the Democratic Party further to the left in, in future elections, there is a bit of an argument for him to remain in the in the race. I think those are the two big things that they consider. To be fairly essential and why they might stay in a little bit longer i, I do however basically concur with swin he's never made up hillary the, the fact that hillary ran up a huge delegate margin on him in the south he's never been able to recover all those delegates and even in states when he wins like he did for a, a little string of time he wasn't making up nearly enough delegates to overcome the fact that she had sprinted off far ahead of him and that in the, the races to come looks like she's going to keep that
0: I have a feeling that a lot of the Bernie Sanders supporters out there are going to look at today's numbers and call some media bias. Uh, Hillary Clinton won with 57% of the vote, uh, almost 20% more than Sanders did in the state. Yet if you look at the delegate breakdown, she got 139 delegates to his 108. Uh, you know, to a lot of average voters, it doesn't really look like it's a huge difference there. It kind of looks like, hey, he did pretty well. Uh, you know, percentage-wise, doesn't matter. He got a lot of delegates but both of you are making the argument that he can continue to get delegates at these numbers but what he really needs to be doing is getting them in landslides at this point to be able to be a credible candidate
2: correct right well you kick it right back at the bernie supporters um he won something like seven contests in a row but his delegate margins were pretty similar to what you just laid out he was winning contests without uh, substantially picking up delegates on hillary and so for Her to turn around and to win New York in fairly decisive fashion, but with only a spread of 30-ish delegates, is still a spread of 30-ish delegates, and he needed to be picking up those 30 delegates on her. I mean, the problem for him in terms of basic math is that he needs to be outperforming her in every state by a substantial margin to make up her spread on him. And every time he fails to do that, it gets a little bit harder.
0: So let me ask you about the Republicans now. Uh, I actually went and spent some time with both uh, Ted Cruz and John Kasich in New York when they were up there campaigning. Uh, very different campaigning styles and a very different feel at both of their rallies. But uh, looking at the numbers today, I would say that they both equally qualify as as losers. Uh, John Kasich only got three delegates in the race. Uh, Cruz got zero. Um, Cruz who did spend some time in the state, really struggled in New York City, couldn't really find a foothold in the state for his typical voter base, which tends to be uh, very religious-leaning, very conservative. Kasich was more successful in finding that group, but when you consider the fact that he cannot win the nomination outright without going to a contested convention, I do think that was something that was weighing on a lot of his voters' and supporters' minds when they were trying to figure out whether they were going to vote for him on Tuesday's primary. So... Now that we're looking at those numbers, now that New York is over, uh, and we only have really a handful of races that are going to get a significant number of delegates to these candidates, uh, looking to Indiana next and then California, uh, we're starting to hear more party members calling for both Kasich and Cruz. And Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that?
2: I woke up at 5 a.m. this morning and I sat down and went through the remaining states on the primary calendar I evaluated if people if we have polls available in these states. I evaluated st- um, states based on states similar to them and I looked at the delegate numbers. And my only goal was to see, realistically speaking, which of the two scenarios I just laid out would do more to benefit Republicans who are seeking to prevent Donald Trump from winning the nomination. IE, would it be more beneficial for these Republicans to want John Kasich and Ted Cruz to remain in the race or would it be more beneficial for them to have only one of the two, either Kasich or Cruz, to remain in the race? And I'll be very, very blunt. I don't know. You sit there and run it through because the states have different uh, delegate rules, because the states have different populations, because the states have, uh, realistically speaking, very different looks for outcomes. Um, It's a pretty mixed bag. Uh, And so you see people dropping some, frankly, hot takes, and I myself have dropped some, frankly, hot takes. If you are sitting there thinking like throwing darts at a calendar and you want to say, what two states should I pay attention to? They are Indiana on May 3rd and the state of California on June 7th. So in the state of Indiana, uh, the Hoosier state, which has a lot of delegates at stake on May 3rd in a winner take all election, there's been zero public polling. And you can sort of sit there and as I'm doing right now, figure like you can do a a nice shruggy and say, "I I have no idea. But that's pretty fair. It's next to Ohio, which John Kasich won. It's in the Rust Belt, where Donald Trump has performed very well, but it's also a state where Republicans have been leaning pretty hard to Tea Party directions, uh, which would suggest that it would do well for Ted Cruz. So in that state, in which is perhaps the most important state in this, in, the, in the month of May, we have no idea.
0: And when you mean you have no idea, you mean you have no idea if it will benefit the party for him to stay, and you have no idea who's going to take that state?
2: We have not the slightest clue who's going to win. I mean, that is sort of the we're seeing a lot of projections put out in which we don't honestly know who is going to do well, depending on which scenario, because we have not the slightest idea how the state is going to perform. You can sit there and paint scenarios for each of the three candidates where they're going to do better than expected, but it is the like the definition of flying blind in the era before airplanes had radar. So that's sort of the, the situation in in which we are. The other state is California, where it's going to take a gargantuan amount of money to do well because it has 54 elections on June 7th. It has 53 congressional districts, which are winner-take-all, spread throughout the state. And it has a statewide primary election, which is also winner-take-all.
1: the really cool thing about the California primary for Republicans uh, this time around for this election is that it actually might matter. Like it's – there are 172 delegates up for grabs more than any other state and usually by this point in the Republican primary, once you get to California, it's kind of an irrelevant primary or point because the nominee has already been decided at that point. If Ted Cruz actually does manage to win the California Republican primary, then that could actually significantly shift the race. I don't think it's going to happen because Donald Trump has such a sizable lead and I think it's sort of a foregone conclusion at this point that he will win. But let's say if he doesn't, that would actually matter in this election. And California has a pretty long recent history of not mattering in the Republican primary process.
0: You know, Chris, when I heard the same rhetoric being used up here in New York City this entire week, uh, shock and awe from a lot of the state's chairmen that, you know, New York is actually a, a race that matters through the Republicans. And I'm sure that we're going to be hearing the same thing for Californians. I have to say, I'm really skeptical about all of this. I think that, you know, the math that we're looking at, I think that, you know, the. I think that looking at how the numbers are coming down race after race. We're playing a long waiting game right now. I think it seems like we pretty much know how both parties are going to go in terms of nominations, but we're holding our breaths and kind of holding out to finally to make those final conclusions until both these these states of you know Pennsylvania for the for the Democrats and then Indiana for the Republicans and then California for the both of them vote, and then we can finally make our conclusions. But I think something very major would have to happen to kind of change the course of the race at this point.
2: The Never Trump folks who threw efforts in New York, uh, overwhelmingly threw those efforts for John Kasich, uh, as an example. Uh, if you go speak to the people behind like Stop Trump PAC, which is thrown a decent amount of cash uh, in selective districts to try to peel off Trump voters, they were supporting Kasich. If you talk to the data people who were sitting, analyze potential uh, knockoffs
0: there were some recent calls for Kasich to drop out. Up into this moment, the the going knowledge from the Never Trump you know campaign, which basically came right before the Florida primary and has been very strong after, which is that anyone who is a Republican supporter who doesn't want Donald Trump to win should just vote for either of these candidates, either Kasich or Cruz, whoever they think is going to be. Uh, better in the race, who's ever has more of a likelihood of winning that state primary. Kasich was that person in this in this circumstance. Obviously, he did not do well enough to really keep Donald Trump from the majority, which would have been key in this circumstance. But I mean, he did. He was he was the candidate that outperformed Cruz. So why are people like Mitt Romney calling for him to drop now? I mean, wouldn't that actually help Donald Trump?
2: I'll be frank. I I think people are at this point confused and they're not sure what they're going to do, and there, a lot of them are speaking off the cuff. Romney has a point that, particularly in states like Indiana, um, the existence of John Kasich in the race is going to make it harder for Ted Cruz. The, the math is muddled. The math is a mess. I think one of the things that they're considering is that if you simplify the race to a choice between two people, that a mass of Republicans are going to go vote for the person who's not Donald Trump, and therefore that one person. Um, it's a little bit of a mess.
1: There's also a bit of flawed analysis based on that because, like, what the wishful thinking is that okay if you get rid of a Kasich or a Cruz, all of those supporters would flood to either Kasich or Cruz, who, who's a, whoever is left. Right. That, that's not it, how it would work.
2: It just pre, it it kind of just presupposes that like there is this like silent majority of Republicans who say anyone but Trump, and the math that we've seen when candidates exit the race, like when Marco Rubio exited the race, was that a lot of his people went to candidates who weren't Donald Trump, but some of it went to Donald Trump. And so the idea that if a Kasich were to exit the race, that all of a sudden Ted Cruz would emerge as this, like, titan, not so much. Uh, or if Ted Cruz was to exit the race, that all of his people would be like, you know what? I love that Ohio Republican named John Kasich who expanded Medicaid. Right He's instant. not terribly convinced that, like, there's a ton of crossover between those two candidates. So now for something like completely different than we just talked about that has nothing to do with primary elections last night. Yesterday, the Trump campaign released and Donald Trump proceeded to tweet a video called, are you coming to the train? It was basically a montage of memorable moments, many of which went viral of Donald Trump interacting with minority Americans. Now that itself was, was whatever, I was sat there and watched it. I was like, oh, this is gonna be good content. But most of the way through the video, it takes a like a very strange turn. It goes to black. It brings up like "Make America Great Again," it proceeds to make fun of lying Ted Cruz, and then it brings it introduces a song, uh, which we'll play in a little bit. That is a riff off of the theme song from the Hunger Games, called like "Are You Coming to the Tree," remixed as "Are You Like Are You Hopping on the Train?" Are you? Are you? Come into the train, led by a man who wants to break the chains. Establishment is terrified; they can't control his reign. Let's meet this year on the Trump train. And are so, what you, you kind of get you, from the song is one, it's super catchy, uh, and I pissed off most of the reporters in the office yesterday because I wouldn't stop humming it and playing it. But the second is sort of the like inexplicable bit of it, which is to ask, like, where the hell did this come from?
0: So what are the origins of the song here? I mean, what does the Are You Coming to the Tree mean?
2: Right, well, I mean, it's the, uh, f- for the, the people in the audience who are not 14 or 27 or whatever, who haven't read or consumed the Hunger Games stuff, the book is the story of a re- revolution against an authoritarian dictator housed in an area. that's basically Denver, called the Capitol, it's and basically Denver. And Jennifer, it, it is basically Denver. And Jennifer Lawrence, the like the hero character of the movie, and movies, leads this uh, revolution. And her like sort of thing is called the Mockingjay, and the the song is, functionally a. About this it's it's a, it's a sad song about the deaths and the casualties, but also about the hope of this fight against this authoritarian dictator. Now, somehow, the Trump campaign, and they haven't responded to my several requests for like where the hell did this come from, found this and then thought, you know what we're gonna do with this is we're going to take this song about overcoming like a authoritarian dictator. And we're going to make it like, are you hopping on the Trump train? And if you don't hop on the Trump train, watch out. So it was a a, a spot where like a grown man, like respect, uh, managed to like do something that will inevitably anger tween Twitter, but also completely confuse anyone who's under the age of 30.
1: Or they'll just hear a catchy song about jumping on a Trump train. I mean... Well, they might. I mean, it's mean, that, truthful. It is, it that's is. why I was here. I, I mean, I'm not a uh, Hunger Games aficionado or obsessive at all. But the, the thing that makes me laugh about this is the other part um, is that the campaign, as you reported to us a second earlier, made this. Like, this wasn't something they found on the Donald Trump subreddit that they repurposed. And then, like, blast out on Twitter and then Donald Trump on Twitter. The campaign made this short video, and also the tra- the term "trump train itself," and correct me if I'm wrong, is also a product of social of pro-Trump social media. Like that's that not something the campaign came up with. They,
2: it's, it's correct. Uh, the, the, a lot of the trump like a lot of the trump-ish things and a lot of the th- most memorable things that Donald Trump has tweeted come from his fans or people who right who seem to be his fans, or like Twitter eggs, Creating or like-
1: memes that are hilarious, and if they're... And most of them are, seem completely earnest, and it's just like self-parody.
0: I can just imagine that the Donald Trump campaign headquarters has Jennifer Lawrence posters and PETA posters all over. But what I find really fascinating about this, and I haven't seen the video, Justin, so you'll have to tell me, does this mean Donald Trump is basically saying he is the Jennifer Lawrence in this political game, that he is the underdog trying to rise up against maybe the Republican establishment? I mean, is that what this movie is insinuating?
2: I'm not going to go so far as to say yes, but I think yes. Uh, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Reading this earnestly, this would very much put Donald Trump as the leader of a revolution. I mean, honestly, he's kind of swiping Ted Cruz's mojo. He's portraying himself as the leader of a revolution against a corrupt elite who do things that damage normal people. So maybe in a way, this is a signal for a general election that what we truly have now is a Hunger Games-esque character who's ready to overthrow the... The shackles are like I now have all these these people saying one of two things. One of like, how dare whoever did this do this and delete this? Like this is terrible. How could you do this to the Hunger Games? Which I wasn't aware had feelings. But the <laughs> second part of it is people saying that's weird because I think that Donald Trump is going to start the Hunger Games.
0: Well, guys, it's been a it's been a big political week and we have just as big of a race next week. So I really only have one thing to say all of the candidates. May the odds be ever in their favor.
2: I don't know what that means,
1: but all right. I I'll get the reference, no.
0: <laughs> All right, guys. It was great having you on the show, and uh, I will see you in the flesh next week.
1: Cheers. Have Cheers. a good one, Miranda. Thanks. Are
2: you, are you coming to the train We're ahead of hope Side by side with me
1: Make America great again Break the chain Let's meet this year on the Trump train.
0: Trailmix 2016 is a production of Scripps News out of our Washington, D.C. bureau. The show is produced by Eric Krupke. You can follow us at Twitter at Trailmix2016. We post a lot of extra little tidbits and things we talk about on the show there. You can also follow me at my Twitter handle, Miranda C. Green. And make sure to rate us on iTunes. Any extra stars or any extra little ratings go a long way. Thanks for listening. We're going to
2: win and we're going to keep winning. And we are going to make America great again. Greater than ever before. Greater than ever before.
0: You guys really don't get that reference. You're joking, right?
1: No, we were kidding. We we were making fun of you.